You know, virtually all of my greatest experiences of life have occurred in situations in which I and other people say the word our to each other. O-U-R, our. Everybody say our. Or ours. Or if you come from Texas, our. Yeah, whatever works. Um, which is to say, you know what, what ours is, it's like, it's not yours, it's not mine, but it's, it's ours. We've decided that this thing is our thing together. And, and that concept has been the foundation of most of the great experiences uh, in, in my life. I think of some of the, the formative our experiences uh, in my life. Uh, some of the earliest our experiences that I can recall uh, happened uh, when I was... Uh, very young on sports teams. Anybody else have that experience? Uh, it's where we, we got together and decided that, that we were going to share a mission. And the mission was so important to us, you know, maybe it was winning baseball games or something relatively silly, uh, but it was so important to us that we were going to belong to each other. Uh, and that this little community that we had was our community. Uh, and uh, you know, and I just, sports was a huge part of my childhood, became a huge part of my adolescence. And by the time I got to high school and was playing them rather intensely, um, I saw sports teams save kids' lives. You know, maybe some of you uh, had similar experiences with sports or some other pursuits. Uh, and the way sports saved kids' lives uh, was, I think, by providing an experience of our, an experience of together ownership of something. You guys have similar experiences like that? Say amen or hua or chihu or, or turn up the air, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and of course, you know, thankfully I've had some our experiences in, in, in my Christian life as well. Um, particularly when I left, uh, left home and uh, sort of got through uh, college and uh, for a while I lived in a place called East Palo Alto in California, which was an extremely uh, violent, uh, very oppressed neighborhood at the time. It had been decimated by crack cocaine back in those days. And, and um, it's a place where, uh, where if you lived, you, you, you would hear automatic weapons fire. I mean, literally machine guns, like every night uh, in, in your neighborhood. There's a place where cops were afraid to go. Um, and uh, I moved in with a couple uh, Christian buddies of mine, and we sort of started a house where we opened the doors and just welcome in people off the streets. It was sort of a recovery house for people trying to get off crack, trying to get out of uh, prostitution. We built bunks in our garage and an outdoor shower in our backyard that homeless people would come to use. It was just a great thing to do. Uh, after college, um, and there was such a sense of community there, such a sense of our, well, kind of because there had to be, you know, because when you're on the frontier like that, when things could go very wrong very quickly, you kind of own each other uh, in, in a beautiful way. Anybody have any experiences like that in which intensity sort of created a sense of our that was really life-giving? Um, Sony and I have had the privilege of being part of uh, a number of really great small groups. At this church, we call them Ohana groups. 
um, where you just get together with people weekly. You're part of a bigger church, but you get together weekly to get to know one another better and to share life together, maybe to study scripture, but also to develop one another in the Lord through discipleship. I mean, small groups can be such awesome experiences. We've had some tremendous hour experiences uh, in our small groups, such that we've seen you know, lives get changed, lives literally get saved. Uh, we've had a number of small groups uh, that became so filled with life and so multiplicative that they themselves became their own churches. You're sitting in a church right now uh, that has that sort of legacy. In the early days of, of Blue Water Mission, there were just a handful of us. But I think for, for the few of us who were there at the beginning, who was there at the beginning? Not, not many, not many of us, right? But, um, but we owned each other in a way that was our. It's like, you know, we're responsible for what we have together uh, in this group, and I think, I think we want to share it. I think we want to be responsible for other people as well. I, I think we want to share our thing and to increase it. Uh, obviously, our families, our biological families, our families of origin are supposed to be places where there's a strong sense of our or ours, right? I say supposed to be because I know full well that's that some of us grew up in families where there wasn't much of a sense of ours, uh, families that were combative or families that were broken or fractured in, in bad ways. Um, I had um, some, uh, some biological relatives <laughs> uh, that, that loved me. The, the course of my childhood was really strange and quite tumultuous, so I didn't necessarily have a lot of those relatives in my life at any given time. Eventually, I got a step family. Some of us uh, experienced that. Uh, for me, generally, I would say in my life, family has always been where I have found it. That I've had people who have, we have this great word on the island, Hanai. You know, they adopted me. Not, not because they had to, but they just decided that, that, uh, that we had an hour. You know, my joy became their joy. My success became their success. You know what I mean? For no other reasons than they decided that I was part of their group, you know, and our, anybody had families like that? Our experiences, our experiences have been the most powerful experiences of, of, of my life, and I think probably a lot of you uh, would say that as well. It's when, when a group of people can look at each other and say, ours, that's where good and powerful things start. But the concept of our, uh, in, in, in our society and societies in general is a real stumbling block. Um, I, have a, I have a PhD in political theory. Not proud of it, but it's true. Uh, I, I spent a lot of years uh, studying a lot of strange, uh, specialized, and mostly useless things. Um, but one thing that social scientists and political theorists, political scientists, think about a lot are problems of collective action, collective action problems. Everybody know what this is? Yeah, nobody knows what that is, which proves my point. A lot of strange and special things that, that are mostly useless. But collective action problems are problems that, um, where, in which uh, groups should have a common goal. And that common goal should be really, really clear. But because of 
individual desires, the common good kind of falls apart. And these are called collective action problems. One very famous collective action problem is what um, people call the, the tragedy of the commons. The commons. The commons is, is a word that we don't use uh, very much, um, but it was a common word uh, back in the day. Anybody from Boston? Seriously? You always have some people from Boston. The Boston Commons is a very uh, famous uh, portion of the city. It's just this big open park. And they call it the Commons because back in the day when Boston was, was first settled and first becoming a city, then, then the, the governors of the city said, well, we're going to have this huge park in the middle of the city, which is just this big grassland, and that's something that everybody is going to own in common. It's going to be the commons. And the reason that cities had commons is because farmers could then graze uh, their cattle, their sheep, on the commons. It was grassland that everybody shared, that everybody held in common. It was our common grazing ground. <clears throat> that was the common. And the tragedy of the commons is this in societies all over the world, that you hold a resource in common like grassland or maybe a lake that provides water for your irrigation or something like that. And everybody shares it and everybody takes care of it, but there's always one person who shares it a little bit more. It's like, well, this is common ground, so what I'm gonna do, instead of grazing my cattle for two hours a day like everybody else, I'm gonna graze my cattle for 12 hours a day. And then what happens? Well, that one person takes more than his or her share. And, and if even a handful of people start doing that, then the whole system breaks down, right? Now you have more than you need and other people don't have enough. And if it's held in common, if there's no authority policing it, then that's, it becomes a tragedy. And they call that the tragedy uh, of the commons. There's always a temptation to defect from society, from shared society in that way. You know, you're either gonna use more than your fair share or you're gonna cheat just a little bit or you're going to become what's, what social scientists call a free rider. Everybody's going to pay taxes but you, and you're just going to enjoy the benefit that comes from everyone else, you know, the free rider problem. These are all problems of, of groups, of communities, um, and people study these things. Uh, they think about them uh, maybe too hard. There are ways, there are always ways in groups in which some people don't own the group don't share in the group quite the same way that other people share in the group because we're individuals and we often give in uh, to, to selfishness. Everybody following me so far? That's my political science lecture for the day. Thank you very much. That was, that was Dr. Sang. Now I'm back to Jordan. Um, this, I mean, collective action problems, uh, I mean, one way of thinking about why communities don't behave properly. This is why we rape the environment. Everybody knows we should take care of the planet, right? Nobody, nobody comes forward and says, no, 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 it's good to destroy the planet. It's good to destroy the environment. Nobody says that. Everybody agrees that it's a collective good. But there are tons of people who are willing to exploit the environment for their selfish gain and kind of ruin it for everybody else. Why do they do that? Well, because it's only, you know, I'm only exploiting it a little bit. In the grand scheme of things, the little bit that I pollute it isn't going to make a big difference. 
Well, I mean, technically that's true, but if enough people think that, if enough people think individualistically, the, the environment is destroyed. Collective action problem, right? Um, uh, it's why congressmen and congresswomen continue to do really stupid things. It's because they are charged with governing the whole country, but you know, when a lobbyist flashes $100,000 in front of your face, you decide to pursue your individual interest instead of the national interest, right? That's simplistic, but generally, that's what happens a lot. People see the common good, but for whatever reason, they decide not to pursue it. It's why families fall apart, too. Everybody understands what would be best for the whole family, but many of us come from families in which there have been defectors, people who just decide that for whatever reasons they cook up, it's better for them to follow their individual interest than to follow the interest of the family. You know, many of us have that experience. Shared ownership, our experiences don't work well unless, well, unless what? Unless people have a certain internal strength, you know, in which, in which they've internalized a certain selflessness, a little capacity for self-sacrifice, for self-monitoring. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's like really, really hard for humanity to pull that off. Unless, unless what? Jesus often addressed that question. In life, I think there's a big difference, follow me here, I think there's a big difference between owning and possessing, between ownership and possession. Uh, and and here's, here's what I mean by that. You can own something uh, in common, and ownership implies, you know, responsibility. I'm, I'm, I'm responsible for this thing uh, that I own. I enjoy this thing that I own. I have authority to influence this thing that I own, but I don't possess this thing that I own. I don't control individually this thing that I own. There's a conflict in life between ownership and possessiveness and control, uh, I think. And it applies to a lot of, of things in life. If I say to you, hey, I'm, I'm going to take ownership of your life. I'm, I'm going to own you. Now, depending on how that word strikes you, that can be a very comforting thing. You know what? I'm, I'm going to take ownership of your troubles. Your troubles are my troubles. Your need for support is, is, is my need to support you. You know, we, we own each other here. But what if I say to you, hey, I possess you. Okay, that doesn't feel so good, does it? You know, when, when we get possessive, that feels a little controlling, a, a, little, a little selfish, it, it, you know, it goes from being sort of, well, you know, I have authority to influence your life. That sounds pretty good. Um, I dictate your life. That does not feel so good, right? It, this, this impulse is often at, at war in us. Jesus was a total owner and completely not into possessing anything. And I think about like general concepts that really explain Jesus' life. This is one of those general concepts that I think really explains a lot of how Jesus lived his earthly life. He came 
He came to the world, and he, he essentially said, we won't go through all the scriptures, hey, I'm, I'm the Lord. I mean, rightfully, I'm, I'm the master. You should all recognize me as having a tremendous amount of authority. And from time to time, I will demonstrate my authority. I will kick out demons. I will heal uh, bodies. Um, I will, you know, do all sorts of amazing miracles. Um, I, I, I own this place. Jesus demonstrated that. But he went out of his way to possess none of it, right, to leave, to leave freedom where it should be. He didn't possess anybody. Demons possess. The Lord does not possess. The Lord merely owns. You see the difference? Jesus said, uh, you know, the Son of Man has no pillow on which to lie, lay his head. He, you know, foxes have holes in the ground, but I don't even have any place to sleep, Jesus said. He, he, he lived as a wanderer, you know, as, as a beggar, sort of. That's how he lived. At the beginning of his ministry, uh, Satan tempted him in the wilderness in a very famous episode uh, when Jesus was fasting for 40 days and Satan comes and tempts him in all ways that are, are common to, uh, to humans. And at one point, Satan lifts Jesus up to a high place and says, this is the world. I am in possession of it. Satan says, I will turn it over to you. You can control it all if you simply bow down and worship me. And, uh, and, you know, Jesus quite obviously said, no, no, I don't, I don't want to possess it. I just want to own it. I want to take responsibility for all of it. I want to support it. I want to enjoy it. I want to influence it. But I don't want to possess it. All right, you following me so far? Very idea-driven, very heady. Um, you know, possession is a human desire that I think is fueled mostly by insecurity. Why do we want to possess stuff? Well, so we can control stuff. And if we control stuff, it becomes safe. It becomes predictable. Uh, it, it, it secures our future. We want to possess people. Why? Well, because then there are people. We can control them. They will give us what we want. We don't have to be afraid of them leaving or disappointing us. They have to do what we say. You know, ownership versus possession. When do we want to merely own something, though? I mean, I understand why all humans want to possess. When do humans simply want to own and not possess? And I think it is only when they love. Only when they love. I think love is about ownership, not possession. No. Most famous passage on love in the Bible 1 Corinthians 13, that's the one that everybody reads at their, at their wedding. Chapter 13 in Corinthians is a love poem. We're not really sure if Paul wrote it. He's the guy that wrote Corinthians or if he was quoting from some great poet of, of the age. But it's a beautiful poem, 13 verses long. Uh, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It's not, it's not selfish. It does not seek its own. Uh, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not keep accounts. My favorite translation says it. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I like that word always. It's repeated with great meaning. Uh, and power there in that verse. Why does it always protect? Well, because it's, it's never 
just self-interested. It's not conditional. Love loves. Love loves. Love loves all people the same. Why? Because love is loving. It doesn't worry about whether or not the person standing in front of it is lovable. Love always loves. Never does it not love. It always perseveres. You guys know that verse in 13? How many of you married people included it at your wedding? Yeah, yeah, that's what I figured. It's a classic. You can't go wrong with 1 Corinthians 13. You know, call me crazy, but I think what these verses, and of course I didn't read the whole chapter, but I think what these verses say is that love is a, is a sort of ownership. It's ownership without, without possession. Um, love takes responsibility. Love enjoys. Love rejoices with, with the very act of loving, you know. I love you, which means I rejoice with every good thing that happens to you. I love you, which means I love you no matter what the truth about you is, no matter what you do, no matter how ugly you are, no matter how beautiful you are, you know. You and I, we're ours. We have, a, we have an ours. Um, that's what love is about. You're mine to take care of, to enjoy, but not really to possess, not to control. Love does not seek its own. Love is not self-seeking, as the new NIV translates it. Love is not self-seeking. It owns, but it doesn't take possession. But it does own, you know. It does own. It always gives. It always sacrifices. Are you following me? Love is a sort of ownership that just doesn't take possession. It takes responsibility but it does not take control. It does not keep records, as this, translations, this translation says. It's not a contract, right? There's no give and take. There's only give in love. You're mine, but you're not about me. That's what love says. I want, I want love in life. Um... There's so many fancy ways to talk about the gospel and kingdom living and community and justice and all these amazing things. But what it comes down to for me is like love. You know, that's what I want in life. I want our. I want to be in an our situation. Love is, is just the greatest thing that there is. I want love in the world. I want love in life. I want a place of love to go all the time. I want to go to a place where everything is the commons, where everybody owns and nobody possesses. I want that more than I want anything else in life. I want a people of love more than I want uh, any, anything else. I want, I want to be part of a culture of love, you know, which everybody is owning and nobody is, is possessing. I don't really want to be a part of a place where there are lots of guarantees, where there are contracts, uh, you know, relational accounts. I don't really want to live in a, in, a, in a place where there are a lot of certainties and guarantees about the future, if that involves control and a lack of love. 
Um, I don't want to be part of a place where there's an inner circle and an outer circle or something like that. I, I don't want to be part of organizations that are professional in the sense that there are providers and consumers, different roles. I want a commons. I want an hour. I want an ohana, not an organization. It's what I want to be a part of in life. I want the experience of friendships rather than associations, if you know what I mean. But this sort of place is really hard to build in this world. And, it, and places of love, communities of love, are so hard to build that when I have experienced it, even a little bit, I call those experiences the greatest in my life. You know, our experiences. When I have them, they're just, they're just like explosions of goodness for me. Which is all a long-winded winded way of saying that love is still the main thing in life. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter ends famously by saying, hey, now the three big things are faith, hope, and love. Those are the best things in the world. But the greatest of these is love. Can't forget that, no matter how powerful life uh, becomes. No matter how powerful your gifts or how awesome your situations, the greatest thing in life is, is always love. Love is always the main thing. Um, I've been thinking a lot about love uh, recently, just as I read the news, when we're having all these natural disasters right now, which just provoke a lot of compassion uh, out of you as, as you read it. It's like, oh my gosh. Um, your heart just goes out to these people. You want a way to love them. Uh, before that, all the headlines were about justice, you know, people mistreating people for arbitrary reasons that have to do uh, most recently uh, with race or ideas of racial supremacy, uh, you know, all of that, all of that nonsense. And I am, I'm a big fan of justice. Uh, we have organized our church powerfully uh, around justice missions. But I do have a pet peeve about people who love justice without loving love. Um, I, and, and I probably should not be this way, so you know, this is, this is not me preaching the virtue of it, but I have a pet peeve about people who love humanity but don't actually love persons. You know what I mean? It's like they're all about humanity. They're all about making the world a better place, but they don't actually take care of anybody Nobody individually. They've never adopted anybody into their life. I, I threw a fit once during one of the many debates on the homelessness problem in Congress, in the U.S. Congress. And I just, you know, it's not good for me to read. It's not good for me to watch C-SPAN very often. Um, I, I was perusing one of these congressional debates, and, and I, just, I, I just started screaming. You know, all these congressmen and congresswomen were sort of pontificating about the solution to homelessness. And, and I, I thought, I wonder if you could find in all of Washington one politician who ever took a homeless person into his or her home. And so for a while, I actually went on this vendetta. I started researching to see if I could find an individual example, which is just vengeful and unforgiving and unloving and just awful, you know, so don't do what I do. Uh, plus, you know, who has the free time for that sort of stupidity? You know, I should not be doing these sorts of things. But there's something about it that's a little bit legitimate. You know, I just, 
I distrust people who get very excited about ideas of justice but don't actually love anyone. And it provokes in me a hunger. It's like, I don't want just systems if I can't have love. You know, love is always the main thing. You know, and I, I really miss the glorious speeches of, of guys like, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who talked about love, you know, and, and sadly in our debates of, of racial justice today, our very important debates of racial justice, I just don't hear love mentioned as I think maybe Jesus would want it mentioned. Um, and that's a little bit heartbreaking for me. Um, I'm all for just school systems and just education, but when I think about my educational experience, what made a difference for me? It wasn't the system, it was the one or two teachers who decided to own me. Anybody have experiences like that in life? It's the our experiences that are the most important ones in life. You know, for me, that's what it was. One or two teachers and one or two coaches. That explains more about me than the system that I was a part of. How are we doing at, at loving uh, is, is a great question and, and a question uh, that uh, the All Church Retreat uh, was going to be about, is going to be about just a little bit later than scheduled. Um, how are we doing at loving? How are we doing at owning without possessing? How are we doing at owning people without possessing people? How are we doing at owning our community without possessing uh, our community? How are we doing at owning the world without trying to take possession of any part of it? Um, like Jesus. Uh, a lot of people can only love what they possess. And I don't want to be that sort of person, but I think, you know, it's human nature. A lot of us only feel comfortable loving what we can control, we can possess, we can guarantee, we can secure. Uh, you know, we're, we're obsessed with finding safe places, which can be totally good. Um, places are made safe through love, <laughs> you know. But we need to do it generally in life as well. Take responsibility for people who don't behave properly. <laughs> Take responsibility for people that we don't control maybe take responsibility for people we don't even agree with. That's the sort of ownership that I think Jesus preached. That's the sort of love uh, that Jesus preached. My favorite example of a, of a community of love and commons and ownership in, 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 the, in the sense of that I'm talking about the word comes from Acts 2. Um, it's where uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is describing the early Christian church. And in those days, they wouldn't even called it a church. There was just a community of Jesus' followers. And, and what's happened is that a, a chunk of them had experienced walking with Jesus when Jesus walked the earth. And then Jesus left the earth. You know, they had witnessed the resurrection and they were like, oh, he's gone and he's left responsibility for the entire world to us. You know, how, how are we going to own this thing? What are we going to do? What's the proper way to live now that Jesus isn't literally walking right next to us. And so they invent a way of doing life together. They invent community. You know, they invent their ohana. It's the first Jesus ohana uh, in the world. And it's described in Acts chapter 2. I'll just read a few verses excerpted from it. Well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. 
You know, they didn't just study, they fellowship. They, they provided companionship to one another. Um, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They ate together, they prayed together. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. That's the famous part. All the believers were together. That's the less famous part. And they had everything in common. Well, that's just communist. What? All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They had a commons. They had an hour, and they took it to a whole different level. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They owned the whole world together in common. They gave to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They had a mindset for it. Put their heart into it. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Well, they would enjoy the favor of all the people if they were selling everything they had and giving it away and, and healing sick people and stuff like that. I mean, what's not to like about that sort of lifestyle, um, you want those people in your city. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved because anybody who has an hours expands it. That's just the nature of, of love. It's just an awesome passage. This is what the followers of Jesus thought life should be like after witnessing Jesus' life on earth. And I just think it, it continues to be a shining model of, of, what, of what we're going for, uh, at least in concept. Maybe the details will be a little bit different in this society, but this is it. I mean, this is, this is ours. This is our thing right there. Uh, it's a place of love. There is no way you could look at a church like this and think anything else other than, well, that's a place of love. That is a place of love. A ton of what we do as Jesus followers and, and what we should do as a church is about ownership versus possession. We should be owners and not possessors. And I just want to kind of uh, suggest that idea, the ownership versus possession, as something that we can meditate on here in, in the next couple of, of weeks. And, and we do try to design for it uh, as a church. Uh, we have Ohana groups. We have small group meetings, which are the backbone of the church. This is where people get together for fellowship. It's hard to fellowship with, you know, 300 people at once, but we gather in homes and offices and other sites uh, every week. How many small group leaders do we have here? Raise your hands. Be proud. Be proud. Uh, they lead these groups. Uh, many of them host these groups. Uh, and we gather, and, and, and what we do is we build the idea of ours together. Uh, you know, we, we get together and share life. And if you come to my Ohana group, I own you. I don't possess you, but I own you. You know, and you own me, God help you. A lot of the group ministries that we do are really based on this. They're based on the idea of owning each other without possessing each other. We're going to have a prayer line over there on the Mackay wall in a few minutes. And, and I'm going to say, hey, if you have some problem for which you need supernatural help, you need some healing, uh, 
you know, in your body, some miracle in your life, some miracle of, of provision maybe, like we read about in Acts 2. Well, I'm going to have you go over there, and these are people who have given over hours of their week just sort of preparing for supernatural ministry, and they're going to lay a hand on your shoulder, and they're going to work with the power of the Holy Spirit to bless you, to release you, to do some miracle in your life. Why? Because they own you. They may not even know you, but they own you. They don't possess you, but you're their responsibility, and that's kind of what we're saying. It's like, yeah, we're going to take responsibility for you. If it's your first week, you know, we're going to own you as best we can. We can't live your life for you, you know. And take responsibility for yourself too. But you know what I'm saying. Uh, we, we own you. Cakey ministry is like that. I mean, for a little while, every week, we own your children. Um, and, and, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. We're hoping to be influential in the lives of your children in such a way that we have the authority to influence we raise these kids together. I mean, maybe you possess them a little more than I do if they're your kids. Uh, but, you know, this is something that we share. It's ours.